0: PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Sometimes you need an escape. Baseball and books and sports can do that for many people. Today we're going to talk to somebody who has experience in all those fields. Eric Sherman has been writing professionally since he was 14 years old. Several years after attending Emerson College in Boston, he began writing books. His first, Out at Home, with former Dodgers and A's outfielder Glenn Burke, who invented the high five and died tragically of AIDS, is currently being made into a movie by actress and producer Jamie Lee Curtis through Amazon Studios. Eric is also the co-author of four other highly acclaimed baseball autobiographies, A Pirate for Life with Steve Blass, the New York Times bestseller Mookie, Life, Baseball, and the 1986 Mets with Mookie Wilson, Davey Johnson, My Wild Ride in Baseball and Beyond, and the New York Times bestseller After the Miracle, The Lasting Brotherhood of the 1969 Mets with Art Shamsky, who we'll be talking to in a few weeks as well. Sherman is also the author of King of Queens, Life Beyond Baseball with the 1986 Mets. Eric is an annual lecturer at the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. We're thrilled to have him today, and if you want to take a look at any of these books, we highly recommend them. Uh, welcome, Eric.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, uh, I guess a lot of us are indoors, so uh, it, it was It was easy.
1: Well, I appreciate it. And uh, for me, baseball and and books together really kind of take your mind away from everything. And it's an escape for uh, hopefully a lot of people. So I thought,
2: uh, what better thing to talk about than baseball? Yeah, especially since we don't have any baseball to watch this spring and for the foreseeable future. It's it's really strange. It's uh, the first time we've really experienced this, I guess since 95 the beginning of 95 when that strike of 94 kind of spilled over into the next spring
1: yeah what is what is your take i mean what what do you hear about uh, once everything is you know they give the go ahead to, to get back to things how long do you think it will take for for the teams to to spring
2: back into action really well right now the date is may 10th uh it's either may 10th or may 12th that where you know we're supposed to be well, past, I guess, what they call uh, stage two of this, where, you know, the worst is over. You know, hopefully uh, we won't have any new uh, coronavirus cases. We'll be dealing with with what we have, and that's when baseball is supposed to return. Now, what does that mean? Um, You know, it could mean that they resume spring training uh, the players certainly are going to need at least a couple of weeks, I would think. I I don't think we're going to see baseball before June first. That's just my feeling about it. Uh, we might not even see baseball until um, after the All Star break. Maybe they'll they'll do what they did in 1981, while they restarted the season back in '81 after that strike um, at the All Star game. So they have the All Star game and. Then they start the season. Maybe maybe they'll do something like that. So, but I don't think we'll see baseball before June.
1: That's not good. But what are we gonna do? Um, when did you first realize you were you had a, a talent and a gift for writing?
2: Well, I think it goes back. My my influence really was my father. He he worked in the newspaper business uh, as a circulation manager uh, for New York area papers, including the New York Post, a couple of times, and and so. From a very young age, I I was in newsrooms and um, I always thought it was terrific that, you know, if you wrote something, whether it was for the school paper or whether it was for a community newspaper, which I started writing for and actually got paid for it starting at age 14, that, you know, you have people reading your words and there was a degree of authority and power in that and Um, and influence. And that really struck me. And um, I always had a knack for writing. And the more that you write, the better that you get at it. And so at age 14, I was writing a weekly column and uh, got pretty good at it. Went to college for journalism, uh, Emerson College up in Boston. And, And a professor once told me there's nothing older than yesterday's newspaper, but books last forever. And So that really stuck with me. And when I started writing books with that Glenn Burke book back in 1995, I really realized that, you know, it's true. I mean, people are still buying and reading that first book I wrote with Glenn Glenn Burke. And now all these years later, a movie's in the works. And uh, so you never know, you know, you never know what's going to resonate with people. You never know. If what you write can bring about some social change and can touch people. And, uh, and, I, and I think all my books to varying various degrees have really touched people. You know, that's worth more to me than anything, because you're making a difference in people's lives.
1: How did you go about so you want to did you want to write a book or did the book just come about your first book? How, how is that process?
2: Well, it's interesting. I I had wanted to write a book and, and had actually tried to a few years before that with Marty Barrett, who used to play second base with the Red Sox. And, and we um, we had a book proposal done and we wrote a sample chapter. These are all the things that you, that you do. I still do it today. And when I present to my agent and then he presents to the publishing companies and they the consistent remark we we got back was, well, you know, Red Sox Nation, they're still hurting from 86 and it's too soon to write a book about that team. When I started reading about how Glenn Burke was dying of AIDS in uh, 94, I was like, wow, you know, this um, this is a great this is a great story. I contacted Pamela Pitts with the Oakland A's who was taking care, care of Glenn and uh she said put together a book proposal and and we'll see if you know we'll see if he's interested and and as it turned out 17 other writers and four movie companies had the same idea that i had and uh but he picked my my book proposal wow do you remember the first day that it it was released i do uh in fact we had to self-publish because we had a publisher but the publishing industry completely turned its back on baseball uh, due to the baseball strike. So anything related to baseball was canned. So we had a publisher, Taylor Publishing, out of, out of Texas, and they dropped it. And I said to Glenn, well, uh, I give you my, my vow that I will get your story out there, You know, even if I have to self-publish. And that's why I ended up doing it. I'm, I'm really glad I took that chance.
1: I asked this question, um, I just talked to Ed Hearn um, and, and uh, Robert Lipsight, another author, and I'm always interested when when people who put themselves out there in any way, how, how do you deal with the, the reviews and the, the feedback, whether it's a fan, whether it's um, a, a reviewer from the newspaper, um, how do you personally deal with that, good and bad?
2: It's interesting, most of the reviews that my books have gotten have been Pretty positive after the miracle. The book I I just did with Art Shamsky, and um, you know I'm sure you'll get into that. But you know the the reviews were great. It, you know it's just when you go on Amazon and you read some of the trolls that just completely misrepresent what you've written. Yeah, every once in a while, like I'll get the urge to uh, write back and respond. It's like. Yeah, they'll make some ludicrous comment like, "Wow, you know, it was just just about game summaries and stats." And I'm like, "You've got to be kidding me! I mean, it wasn't wasn't about that at all." And yeah, you read that, and you're like, "Yeah, it's it, it's 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 stupid and bothers you for a little bit, but you, you just understand that some people just live there their lives to troll and and to make stuff up, and and they're just trying to get under your skin." But but for the most part. I mean the you know the true pub- publications that have reviewed the books I've written have really been positive and you know I'm grateful for that and um, uh, so um, yeah no 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 complaints as far as that goes um, has the has the book publishing business changed since you started yes in many ways um, advances are half of what they were 20 years ago I I, I think publishing the, the industry has really reduced staff a great deal. You know, so you're doing more now. Uh, I mean, with Davey Johnson, I mean, I literally had to take him, him and I to all of our media uh, because the publisher didn't want to fly somebody in from Chicago to, uh, you know, to take us from, from place to place. And, and that caused some anxiety, you know. And I think publishing in general, I mean, the the last time you picked up a newspaper or even some of the books you read today, you find mistakes. And it's because some of them don't have copy editors or proofreaders now. And it's startling. I mean, every time I pick up a newspaper, especially, it's clear that no one's proofreading. It's, It's alarming how many mistakes that you find. So I think the industry as a whole has really cut back
1: is it still is it still a good business for somebody who who maybe is in college right now that that's that's their goal and dream
2: well yeah i mean i think if you have uh, a love for 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 writing you know then i think you should do it um you know i think a person should always strive to do what they love to do and you know then you know, you're never really working a day in your life, as the saying goes. But just know that it's it, it's entertainment, really. You know, it's uh, very few people can make a living at this. Uh, and it's hard. You know, it's it's a hard living. But if you enjoy it, then I would still say that a young person should go ahead and do it.
1: Could you tell me, um,
2: for instance, with
1: Archamsky, uh, how does that process work? Um, that book, for instance, was that was that your idea? Was that Art's idea? Was it was it a mutual
2: um, combination? Yeah. So the interesting thing with 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 that book was Art wanted to do a, a book on the '69 Mets. He had previously done a book um, mm-hmm. on yes um, the '69 '70 season when the Knicks, Jets, and Mets all won their first championships and. Um, so he wanted to do a book just on the 69 Mets. And so um, my agent came to me and said, Art wants to do a book. And I'm like, that's great. You know, but there have been like 30 other books written about the 69 Mets. And I had written three books um, that revolved around the 86 Mets team. So I had kind of become one of maybe maybe one of two authors that really focuses on the Mets. That's how it's turned out. And so I'm like, well, we need a good angle here. Uh, I mean, to separate us from all the other books that have been written about that 69 Mets team. So Art and I, we had lunch, and we talked about how we were going to do it and, and how we could make it different and special. And, and um, so when he said, Go out and see Tom Seaver because of the condition that he was in uh, from Lyme disease at that time. Uh, I said, well, why don't we bring some of the other players from that 69 Mets team and, and make it a mini reunion since Tom won't be able to come back to New York and join his teammates there to celebrate the 30th anniversary and and we'll write about it. You know, like that'll be... The angle, um, that'll be, you know, the heart of the book, that reunion, um, and the planning of the trip, and uh, and then we decide which players that we would take, um, so Kuzman was an obvious choice, since he was the other great pitcher on that team, uh, along with Seaver. Uh, Buddy Harrelson was Seaver's best friend, and his roommate for years on the road, uh, Ron Swoboda, who made that Incredible catch um, to preserve um, Seaver's only World Series win in game four of the 69 series. Um, and, um, and Art himself, you know, who who's known Tom for years. They both worked in broadcasting after they were done playing. Um, so I was just going to be a fly on the wall. And then the bookends of the book would be, you know, we, we would interview... Um, any living person who had anything to do with that team, so all the players, um, you know, family members, media, um, farm directors. Who at that time was Whitey Herzog. Um, We're going to get into that too. We got in touch with everybody, and so um, worked out really, really well.
1: So, so you have that you have that idea, and you have to present that to uh, at some point the publisher to see if they'll. Approve it and
2: yeah, so we you know the first step is to take it to your agent. Uh, and um, he loved the idea, he thought it was great if we could pull it off. And when I say pull it off, about 50 things needed to break right for that trip to happen. Uh, yeah, Ron Svoboda's wife, who um, you know, was recovering from cancer at that time. Uh, He was also broadcasting minor league games, so we had to work around his schedule and his caring for his wife. Um, uh, You had Jerry Kuzman, who, you know, was probably the easiest one, which is ironic because, you know, he had a heart attack 20 years ago. And, you know, he had to watch himself. And, um, you know, then you had Buddy Harrelson, who um, was already beginning to see the effects of Alzheimer's disease. Um, so, anything could have happened. And and most of all, Tom, you know, his wife, Nancy, told Art, well, you know, he has good days and bad days, and you guys can fly all the way out here, and if he's not having a good day, then, you know, you're not gonna be able to see him. And thankfully, um, he was feeling good the day that we saw him. He took us for a beautiful three or four hour tour of his vineyard, uh, which is you know, right behind his house. We went out to lunch afterwards and uh, it was like old times for those guys. And, um, and I was just a fly on the wall, taking it all in. But, but I must say that personally, that was just a surreal experience. And the guys really made me feel like one of them. I mean, it was great. Um, why the Mets?
1: Uh, I'm a big Mets fan. I have my shirt on right here. Uh, but I guess that's a two-part question. First, why why um, baseball? But then why why the Mets?
2: Well, it's, I think it started out with Mookie. You know, I, I, my, my first two two books, uh, the first was with um, Glenn Burke, who played for the Dodgers and the A's. And then uh, I did a book with Steve Glass um a pirate for life who was one of the top pitchers in baseball and then one day he couldn't throw the ball straight anymore he uh in in inexplicably uh loss of able to throw strikes which is in ball uh, steve blast disease has become a part of the american lexicon you could say so i wrote a book with him and and then uh, my, my agent called me one day and said, how would you like to write a book with Mookie Wilson? Mookie had con- contacted my, my agent. And um, I said, are you kidding? I'd love to. I mean, he's, he wasn't the greatest Met of all time, but probably the most loved, the most beloved Met of all time. <laughs> and, and I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. And um, so from Mookie, I got to meet a bunch of the 86 Mets And that spawned uh, Kings of Queens, Life Beyond Baseball with the 86 Mets. And it was one of Davey Johnson's favorite books. He just loved it. And he said, you're the one that I want to write my autobiography, which I was thrilled about. Because Davey just has an incredible story, both in baseball and out of baseball. And then, um, you know, then all of a sudden I found myself as, you know, somewhat of the expert on the 86 Mets. And then that evolved into the 69 team. It's funny how that works out. You know, Art Art Chamsky and I had had the same agent. And um, so my agent said, you know, do you want to work with Art on the 69 Mets book? And I'm like, yeah, but we need a really good angle. And so we came up with a pretty, pretty good one, I thought.
1: So it's strange how things work out, too, because I, you know, I went back and reread a lot of the books and I know the Mets. So, I mean, Davey Johnson uh, plays against the Mets in 1969, uh, makes the last out. And then he's the manager of the 86 Mets. Um, Whitey Herzog helped the Mets bring a lot of these players in in 1969 and then is battling them in, you know, uh, 84 through um, 89, I believe. Um, and go on and on and on.
2: Um, oh, yeah. The greatest of them all, I, I was just with Jesse Orozco a few months ago, and we were talking about it, how Jerry Kuzman pitched the final out of the 69 series. Then Kuzman gets traded uh, to Minnesota uh, for Jesse Orozco. And Orosco in 86, throws the last strike of the 86 World Series. So you had the the two pitchers that were involved in throwing the final pitch of the only two world championships the Mets have ever had getting traded for one another. So you had the Davey Johnson link with Kuzman and the Kuzman link with the And it's, I mean, you, you can't make that up. I mean, what are the odds
1: that the 69 team and back to, to art Shamsky's book that trip for you. Do you have any ner- nerves at that time? I mean, you're hanging out with, with a group of players who, who are so close Probably don't let a lot of people within to hear all those stories. Could you appreciate it at the time?
2: I certainly could. I was aware of what was going on, (laughs) uh, but I wasn't, surprisingly, I wasn't nervous at all about it because, you know, I've been around players. I've been around a lot of players from that era, um, which helped a lot. I had written books before, so this wasn't new ground for me, but obviously, you know you're in Tom Seaver's house you know you're talking with his wife Nancy you're you're in his office looking at his Cy uh, Young awards you're you know you're walking around this vineyard with him you're he's sharing you know these really touching thoughts about Gil Gil Hodges and Jackie Robinson with you and and um getting emotional about it and you know you're taking all this in you're, you know you're having a you know vodka and 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 cokes with Jerry Kuzman you know, in his hotel room, uh, with Swoboda and Harrelson, you know, sitting on the edge of his bed and, you know, and, and you got Shamsky at the desk next to you and, you know, Kuzmin's just smoking cigarettes and drinking and, and telling you all these great stories. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And, but I had a job to do and the job was to take all this in and, and to transcribe all all this and and really it was like I wasn't just recording history but I felt like to a degree we were making history with that trip
1: um uh, the one th- not one thing the many things but one of the main things that pointed out to me in the book uh, was Whitey Herzog so everybody who doesn't know Whitey Herzog managed the Cardinals um the Royals but before that um could you tell us about Whitey Herzog in that part of the book and the players that he uh, he helped bring in
2: yeah, I mean, he was totally against the Nolan Ryan trade, and I think the Mets traded Leroy Stanton in that deal, too, who was a big-time prospect for Jim Fergosi. And, I mean, when I think about that interview, now, you know, it's been over, I guess it's been close to three years since we spoke to him. Um, that's the thing that really stands out and, and how he's still upset about that trade today <laughs> and and how really, you know, he... He should have been the one that succeeded um, um, Gil Hodges. People were really surprised when Yogi Berra was named the manager. And, um, you know, of course, Whitey went on to become a Hall of Famer based on his managing. Uh, he did such a phenomenal job with the Royals and then the Cardinals and, and then became a gen- general manager. And um, so um, but people forget. I mean, his earliest days were with the Mets, with, you know, scouting and was the farm director. And um, he was a tremendous part of of building the Miracle Mets into what they were. And and, and that certainly was not lost on people like Gil Hodges, uh, Whitey, a lot of credit for developing these guys and scouting. And so um, Whitey Herzog is a huge part of that 69 Mets story. And you also mentioned Yogi Berra. I think if
1: if you have not read the book with Art Shamsky, you have to just go and read the, the portions about Yogi Berra uh, being the hitting coach and <laughs> never never coaching anything that has to do with hitting. Great stories in there about that.
2: Well, the thing about Yogi was he he was the, the, the most notorious bad ball hitter maybe in baseball history. You know, he wasn't a tall guy. And I, I think when he played, he was like 5'10", maybe. Um, five nine, which is really small for a catcher, and I mean he would swing at pitches out of the strike zone all the time. So, when when you talk about the choice for a hitting coach, and of course he doubled as a first base coach, I mean he was probably the worst choice that you could ever make. He he truly was a see the ball, hit the ball kind of coach, and and you know that's not teaching hit, hitters anything. You know you're supposed to lay off the bad pitches. It was Ted Williams who would say, you know, get a good pitch to hit and hit it slightly up. But, I mean, Barrett was just like, see it, hit it. And um, so he was not a big help to, to, the, to the 69 Mets as far as hitting advice goes. Did, did the guys talk fondly of him, or was it... Um... It's interesting. I, I, They all liked him. I mean, he, and they all respected the fact that Yogi Barrett was a Hall of Famer. And, you know, one... I I do he win like 10 championships? I think he has ten ring. He had 10 rings or something like that. I mean the respect was there, but I got the sense that for his teaching ability, there wasn't a whole lot of admiration for what he could teach them. But they all liked him, obviously. You know, everyone loved y- Yogi. But yeah, I, I got that sense that um yeah, you know, that they really respected Gil um, and they respected Yogi for what he had done and what he had accomplished, had accomplished as a player. Maybe not as much as a coach and then later on as a manager.
1: With Gil Hodges that you just you just spoke about. So the one thing I, I took away in the book and I didn't know fully was how stern Gil Hodges was. Uh, he was very focused on the game, you know, eyes out looking at the field all the time maybe not so um, friendly to the players all the time, but uh, he treated everybody the same, and it seems like they all respected him.
2: Oh, my God. I mean, they were afraid of him, you know, and it's interesting. The first year he was the Mets manager, which was in 1968, um, he was just kind of feeling things out. He wasn't really a disciplinarian that first year. Of course, he came from Washington, where he was successful, um, but... You know, didn't win a a pennant with them, obviously. But in 69, they knew from day one of spring training that he really believed in the team and believed that they could have a winning record, which might not sound, you know, very optimistic. (laughs) You know, it's just, yeah, we're going to try to have a winning record. But when you look at where the Mets had been from 62 through 68, you know, their first seven years of existence, you know, they had either been in last place by a long shot or in ninth place out of 10 teams by half a game. So they, they were really, I mean, a dreadful organization up to that point. But Gil really believed in that team heading into 69. And, and you know, he had a military background and everyone, including Seaver, you know, they didn't want to walk by his office for fear that he would pull them in, so he ran that team kind of like a military unit. Um, and uh, but but they they still loved him, and um, even the players that were platooned, and they they had platoons at five positions. You know, at first base you had Clendenin and Cranepool. Second base you had Boswell and Weiss. Uh, third base you had Ed Charles and Wayne Garrett. And in right field, you had Swoboda and Chamsky. And then at the catcher's position, they had three catchers. So Brody saw most of the action. But then you had J.C. Martin and Duffy Dyer, too. And so you had um, really um, it wasn't conducive to players putting up big numbers, which back in those days, of course, would lead to bigger contracts. So these guys, it was affecting their income and their livelihoods, but they knew it was working and they respected Gil. And, and Gil was just um, a wonderful uh, chess master at, at getting guys in and out of lineups. And so they loved and respected him for that and, and they loved winning. And uh, what they pulled off in 69, of course, was nothing short of a miracle. What do you think his Hall of Fame chances are. I mean, what if he doesn't make it this next year, he never will. Um, there is such a fervor behind getting him in. Um, and I think I think he's got a 50-50 shot. That's what I think. Uh, a lot of years have gone by, but I think he I I think it's 50-50. And I you know, I wish I could say it would be more. I I think just as a player uh, you know, I talked to Siever about this, and he said, just don't look at his numbers, but, you know, look at the influence that he had on Jackie Robinson and, and making him feel welcome. Uh, everyone talks about what Wee Reese did for Jackie Robinson, but Gil Hodges was a tremendous advocate for Jackie, uh, supporting him personally, uh, as well as defending him to the media and protecting him against... Uh, racist fans and media, and you know, but his numbers as as, as a player—I mean, you you could make make the case he he was you know the best first baseman of the decade of the '50s, and and then you add the fact that he managed the '69 Mets and churning that organization around, I think that puts him over the top, and and anyone that ever played with him or played under him would
1: agree. On that trip, when when you guys were about done. And about to head back, did did everybody realize that this is probably uh, maybe the last time they're all going to get together as a group in that capacity with with Tom Seaver and,
2: and Buddy Harrelson? There's no question about it. You know, Buddy. You know, God bless him. You know, I I saw him a few months ago, and his Alzheimer's has gotten uh, it. I mean, it's progressed. It's sad. You know, he. He can't sign autographs and, uh, anymore and, and he, he really doesn't speak all that much anymore and I mean it's terribly sad and, and Tom's condition has also progressed, you know uh, he's out of pu- public life now and, uh, and I think we all realized that at the time, which, which is why after lunch, when we were in the parking lot talking, um, nobody wanted to leave. You know, I I think we were in the parking lot for close to an hour because I think everyone realized this was it. You know, there were tentative plans to maybe get together with Tom that night for dinner. But he would get tired around three o'clock in the afternoon, really tired. And that's why we had to see him in the morning like we did. But his wife, Nancy, was phenomenal. Tom and Nancy are really lucky to have had each other all these years and especially now.
1: The 1986 Mets and the 1969 Mets, um, both great teams, two totally different uh, personality
2: groups. I mean, what was your experience there? <laughs> well, I mean, they they were like night and day, you know. And it starts right right at the top with the manager. You had Gil Hodges, who was a taskmaster, you know, a disciplinarian, and yet Davey Johnson, who was the ultimate player's manager. You know, stay out all night if you want, but you better be ready to play the next day. And it wasn't past Davey to find players for making men- men- mental mistakes um, because, you know, maybe they were out drinking or whatever the night before and, you know, they didn't hustle or they made a mental mistake. Well, he would find them. So, he was okay with treating his players like men, but you know, you better be ready to play both physically and mentally the next day. And, but as far as the players, of course, you know, the 69 Mets, they, I mean, they had a bunch of characters. There's no doubt about it, but, but they, um, you know, they came to play. Not a lot of hangovers on that team. Like you had on the 86 team and, and yeah, the 86 team, they, they had a bunch of wild guys and, you know, that um, played just as hard off the field as on. I mean, one of the guys I wrote a book with was Mookie Wilson, like we talked about. And, you know, he was really one of the very few that didn't uh, partake in all the party. But that also was a team that was full of bravado. Um, you know, the curtain calls and, and the brawls and, you know, teams really really hated the 86 Mets um and whereas the 69 team you know there wasn't that that hatred at all towards them in fact I think at a point uh, you know every team outside of Chicago probably felt that they were really good for the game in the country because you know the United States at that time and much of the world was just going through a terrible time with the vietnam war it was really splitting the country and uh you know you had anti-war protests you had racial strife you had equal rights uh you know difficulties i mean you you know there was so much bad going on in the world and you know i think the mets saw you know the, the world saw the mets as as something to take their minds off of all the ills that were going on in the world at the time and Uh, I mean, we've had people write us since our book came out after the miracle, you know, people that were fighting in Vietnam, uh, you know, they would listen to the Mets games on the radio and and it kind of kept them going. So I'm sorry. So you got you know the, the question about the 86 team and the 69 team. They could not have been more different in every way. The 69 Mets were universally loved, I think except in Chicago, um, and maybe Baltimore. <laughs> um, whereas the, um, 86 team was just despised out, outside of New York.
1: How, how about
2: working with them? Was it, was there a difference for you? Both, um, the players from both those teams were phenomenal to work with. Awesome. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, the 86 team, uh, I mean, you talk about surreal experiences, you know, of of being with Seaver and Kuzmin. And uh, how about, you know, being in Dwight Gooden's dining room, you know, having him get emotional about some of his regrets and choices that he made, um, you know, and how he could have arguably and arguably have gone on to become the greatest pitcher of all time. And. And as it was, I mean, he was almost a hundred wins over five, 500, but you know how his addictions and his demons, you know, kept him from maybe winning 350 games and then, you know, going out to Missouri and going to Daryl Strawberry's house and, and having him tell you how he turned his life around and, and then some of the. Um, role players on that team, like Danny Heap and, and Ed Hearn. You know, how Ed Hearn, you know, had a gun to his head and was almost going to end his life because, you know, he was this rising star, really. You know, he, he was Gary Carter's backup catcher, and then he gets, you know, the next season after 86, you know, he gets traded to Kansas City in the infamous David Cohn trade. And um, and he's supposed to be the Royals catcher of the future and and just one malady after another health-wise, you know, just living the life of Job, you know, just uh, just horrible. And, you know, so his once promising baseball career due to one health issue after another, you know, leads him on the doorstep of committing suicide. Uh, everything that happened with Wally backman, and you know, but they were all great guys to talk to. I mean, you know you think about all the brawling and and how tough the these guys are. Wally backman's one of the nicest people I've ever dealt with. Lenny Dykstra is you know he can be charming uh you know he' certainly is kind of out of this world and and it was the most bizarre interview I've ever had, but, but, you know, Lenny, you know, he was terrific. And every time I've seen, seen him since he's been terrific. Um, So yeah, those guys. And then of course the 69 Mets team, I can't say enough about every single one of them. They're just sweet guys and they love talking about the 69 season and, and how much they meant to them. And um, so it's, it's been a great experience, and you know you don't always get that with every player that you interview. And it's been said, you know, never meet your idols because they'll usually disappoint you. Uh, but I must say that in the cases of the '86 and '69 Mets, that was certainly not the case at all. It, it was an absolute pleasure to speak with with every single one of them.
1: You mentioned Mookie Wilson, and I, I was going to ask you uh, somebody like Mookie Wilson and Gary Carter, um, kind of the outliers of that 86 team. How, how did Mookie deal with all that craziness going around him as far as the partying and the drinking and the everything else?
2: Well, I I, I think he just separated himself from it. He knew it was going on. But he's told me many times that he would rather go to battle with a team like that than a team of milk drinkers, because they had a certain edge to them. And I mean, I think Bobby Ojeda in the book that I wrote said it best. I mean, they just didn't want to beat you; they wanted to burn down your village. <laughs> you know, they just had that take no prisoners. They didn't want to just beat you; they wanted to, you know, beat the hell out of you. And it was just that killer instinct that I think made them so great. You know, they absolutely dominated the National League in 1986. Uh, you know, they won the division by over 20 games. They almost blew it in the, in the um, championship series against Houston. Uh, you know, I think if they had to face Mike Scott in Game 7, they probably would have lost. They don't say that, but or at least they don't want to admit it. But I think that's what would have happened. But they were a, just a terrifically talented team, and of course, they almost blew the World Series too. Um, <laughs> but they came came out of that. They uh, there was just something. There there was a little bit of '69 in that '86 team. You know, they 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 were miracles for sure. I mean, the way they pulled out championship series and then the World Series. It wasn't just talent, but there was certainly. Some other elements to it as well, and I and I think when you write books and you're looking for great stories, you know those are the things that you look for. You know you're you're not just looking like I I often get asked, well, have I ever approached Derek Jeter because you know I live in New York, and you know Jeter is such an icon, of course. And you know, would you ever want to do a book with Derek Jeter? I get asked that a lot. and I'm like, you know, I, of course I would, but I I don't think it would be a great story uh, because, um, I mean, he lived such a a perfect life. You know, he had such a perfect career. He won World Series. He, you know, he was MVP of All-Star Games and World Series. and And, you know, he never got in trouble in New York, you know, he... Um, Could you imagine? I mean, we're living in the digital age, and you know, th- he never—he was never on page six, you know. He, and so, I think a a bad day for Jeter would have been tripping over some supermodels' pumps on his way to getting a cup of coffee in his kitchen in the morning. <laughs> you know, like that's a bad day for Jeter. You know, and, and so. Um, But the 86 Mets and uh, the 69 Mets, those those are great stories.
1: And there's a good comparison with um, role players. I don't know if every championship team is like this, but uh, even the 86 Mets, they had um, Backman and Tuffle at second base. They had Mookie and Lenny in the outfield. You had Howard Johnson, who's coming off the bench a lot. Kevin Mitchell. Um, who you talk about in your book. Is that just a comparison between both those teams? Or do you do you see that on a lot of other very good championship teams where you can just intermix players and they come out and perform?
2: Well, I think Gill started that in 69. And that's why the players, you know, were disgruntled about it because this wasn't common in baseball in 1969. Uh, in fact, I think, part of gill's genius was understanding that he had to get the most out of what he had which really wasn't a particularly talented team outside of his pitching staff uh i mean you really didn't have any all-stars cleon jones was the best position player by far you know he hit i think 340 that season uh but he was just coming into his own um i He was not an all-star before 69. So Gil wanted to make make the most of what he had. And and I think that's why he used that platoon. And you you talk about Art Shamsky. Uh, I mean, in the championship series, he started all three games and hit over 530 uh, and was just destroying the ball. And yet, game one of the World Series, it's Swoboda starting in right field instead of Shamsky. And, in fact, Art only started one out of the five World Series games, and that was against Jim Palmer, the right-hander. Shamsky was a left-handed hitter. But I think because of what happened with the 69 Mets, other teams then began using the platoon system. You know, the great Yankee teams of the late 70s, you know, they had Lou Pinella alternating with both Roy White and Reggie Jackson, um, you know, the righty lefty switch. And, and so teams started to do that more and more. Uh, but it was not common that in 1969,
1: um, with Davey Johnson and the book you did with him, which is an awesome book. So uh, we could probably talk here all day. Um, if anybody has a chance, read that book as well. I I think what I took out of that is ultimately they, the Mets ownership and, and a general manager blamed him he became the scapegoat for the trades that they did um so they were out of his control I, I believe you said that uh, or he said he didn't agree with many of them that were going so Kevin Mitchell and Lenny Dykstra for Juan Samuel um
2: well ac- actually Kevin Mitchell for Kevin McReynolds and then later on Lenny Dykstra and Roger McDowell for Juan S- Samuel um so Davy was adamantly against dealing Kevin Mitchell. He thought he was one of the two enforcers on that team. The other being Ray Knight, another guy that Davey did not want to see go, even though, as we found out, Howard Johnson, you know, would become a superstar, um, you know, at the third base position. However, um, winning isn't all about statistics and Davey knew that better than anybody and he knew the makeup of that 86 team would never be the same when both Ray Knight and Kevin Mitchell were not returning and um, Mitchell in particular um, Davey felt that changed the dynamic of the team the most because I mean this was a guy that you know, intimidated other teams. He was from the streets, but yet wasn't a partier, you know, but, but he knew how to handle himself. And, um, you know, Mitchell, he didn't do drugs. He had nothing to do with what happened with, with Gooden and Strawberry, even though the front office felt like he was a bad influence on those guys, which was ridiculous because those two guys were in the majors before Mitchell. And, um, you know, then Mitchell became the most valuable player of the National League in 89 with the Giants and helped lead them to the World Series, really led them to the World Series, uh, hit like 40, 49 home runs, I think. And so the front office was making all these moves without Davy's approval. It really cost them. And it wasn't just Frank Cashin, but it was also McIlvain and and some others that were responsible for these trades. And so it's unfortunate, but the team was never the same after 86. Now, 88, they were awfully good. Um, They stayed healthy for the most part. And um, I mean, that team was probably built to win another championship. But uh, there was just something out of this world about the Dodgers, who I think, that 88 Dodgers team, uh, they're a very close comparison to the 69 Mets. Uh, they had the dominant pitcher in Hershiser. You know, they had one or two others that were good. And I felt the sort of really did the managing job of his career. Uh, because not only did they meet a beat, beat a great Mets team, but they beat uh, just a terrific o- o- Oakland A's team, which was far more talented than the Dodgers team. But it, yeah, so after, but after '86, the Mets just didn't have that bravado that they had. Uh, did, it did, was uh, it was unfortunate. Did did the players or Davey uh,
1: confide in you in um, maybe a disappointment in what should have been?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they all felt. That that team was, I mean, the core of the team, which was Strawberry and Gooden, they were so young. I mean, Strawberry in 86 was 24 years old. Gooden, I believe, was 22 or 21. I mean, they they, they were kids. Yeah, Gooden was 21 years old in, in 86. Think about that. I mean, this should have been a team that you would talk about being great for, you know, the next 12 years. I mean, they could have gone on to becoming like a Yankee-type dynasty. To have only won once is incredible. But the team, they, um, you know, it fell apart. And it really fell, fell apart hard after the Dykstra-McDowell trade. Because that 89 team, I, I've always felt that they gave up on the team too quickly. You know they would have had a shot because I believe the Cubs ended up winning the division and that Cubs team wasn't that great you know it for a division winning or winner they were they were okay but they certainly weren't you know a great team uh, so um you know if they had the wild card back in the eighties the Mets would have made the playoffs five straight years mm. um, 84 through eighty eight. Has this is off topic of your books, but has anybody
1: confided in you uh, uh, as far as what is the dysfunction that always seems to be uh, surrounding the Mets? Whether it's whether it's an injury that nobody knows about and you never get the clear picture of it, or uh, you know they they let somebody go and they become a superstar, and you can go
2: on and on and on. I think ownership has a lot to do with it. You know, if you think about it, they've never really had ownership that was willing to go out and get free agents. You know, even during during the 80s, you know, they had this policy of not going out and getting free agents. When Andre Dawson became a free agent, Davey wanted him bad. And the Mets are like, no, I'm not going to do it. So um, I think for a big market team, you know, in the greatest media market, in the world, really, they think small and the crosstown rivals, the Yankees, think big. Like they realize that if you spend the money, you'll get it back in spades. And I think that's where it starts. But I also think that for whatever reason, they, um, they're penny wise and pound foolish. They don't put the money into um, development like they should anymore. Conditioning. They don't put the mon- money into it, um, It just amazes me because I, I I think they have such a wonderful opportunity they The one thing that they did right was the new ballpark. Uh, I know people wax poetically about Shea Stadium, but City field is a wonderful ballpark. you know I think they spent about eight hundred million to build it, and the Yankees spent like 1.5 billion to build theirs and. I think city Field's a much better ballpark Mm. uh, from a fan experience. And I mean, they should be selling that place out every night and, uh, they don't, you know, and hopefully that'll change. I, I actually think they have a very good ball club. They just have to stay healthy. And, and again, that goes back to conditioning. So, um, hopefully, uh, they'll stay healthy whenever the season resumes or begins. And, um, uh, I think their pitching's awfully good, and I think they've got a pretty formidable lineup and some de- a decent defense. I think they can compete. I think in a short series, no one wants to play the Mets. I think they can beat anybody in a seven-game series.
1: And it's—I agree with you. It seems like since the, all this the virus issue broke out, we've we've stopped hearing anything about the sale of the baseball team. Right? Um, have you heard anything there?
2: Well, I heard it's not over yet, but I think the Wilpons overplayed their hand. They may have talked themselves out of a really good deal because, um, you know, they wanted some involvement in the club after selling the club, which really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, if you're if you're going to spend whatever enormous amount of money, I I think it was what two point five billion or.
1: It was a lot. Yeah.
2: Maybe even be <laughs> more, more than that. You, you know, I mean, you really don't have the right to have any input in the club. I mean, you're selling, I mean, it's like selling a Jaguar and saying, you know, I'd still like to drive it on the weekends. You know, <laughs> you don't have that, that right. And I think they played themselves out of a really good deal. And, and it's a shame because this could only happen to the Mets. You know, they, they have this owner that's going to have unlimited resources, and is a fan, and already has a partial ownership of the club. And I mean, it would have really put the Mets on on the map. I mean, it would have been a total game changer, and um, and they blew it. And it's it's a shame. Maybe the Wilpons think that you know they finally have a chance to win a World Championship again. And and uh, you look at this team and. Yeah, you, know, you really can't argue with that. So maybe that had something to do with it. It's the only thing I can think of.
1: Well, we'll see. And hopefully we see soon. Um, what's in store for you this year? What are your what are your plans?
2: Well, I completed a manuscript on the other side of the story of 86. I I did a very Kings of Queens like book with the 86 Red Sox, huh. where I where I traveled around the country and And met with the key and more intriguing members of the 86 Red Sox to kind of get uh, their take on 86, um, really the good and the bad, because there was an awful lot of good that happened with the Red Sox that year. And really, that 86 Red Sox team turned around their Red Sox organization and really helped put it on a track to where it's been over the last 15 years, which, you know, has produced four world championship teams. And and then what's happened to those Red Sox players since. And there are some incredible stories, um, you know, from Bill Buckner uh, to Dwight Evans, you know, with Buckner and the fallout from the error that he made, which overshadowed what was a borderline Hall of Fame career to Dwight Evans, who who lost both of his sons just in the past year um, to the lifelong illness of of, um, of Elephant Man's disease. Um, and how Dwight Evans played his baseball career, the bulk of it, having two sons going through one surgery after another and coming to the ballpark and, and playing on no sleep and, And that story and then the whole Roger Clemens saga of really being in baseball purgatory or at least Hall of Fame purgatory um, after one of the greatest careers of all time because of his alleged uh, uh, steroids use. Um, Oil Cam Boyd and Bruce Hurst and Rich Gedman and, and and then players like Steve Lyons and Spike Owens you know, who were kind of my Danny Heap and Ed Hearns for this book. Um, So I think it's, it's a book that needed to be written. Um, And um, so that'll, the manuscript's done, it's been turned in, and that book will be released in spring of 21. Um, There was thought about releasing it this year. I'm awfully glad it didn't work out that way. Yeah. um, Because... You know, this is the worst time to come out with a book, obviously, um, much less a baseball book. So uh, future projects, uh, I'm looking at a few right now, uh, but nothing's been decided. So I'm kind of in limbo and, you know, working on um, on the publicity side of the book that's going to come out next year.
1: Awesome. Where can, we, uh, where can we all find you? And I'll put all your links up to your books so people can go check them out. I highly recommend them. Um, Thank you. Yeah, definitely.
2: Yeah, so uh, you can order all the books through links that I have on my website, which is uh, ericshermanbaseball.com. Uh, it's Eric with a K, ericshermanbaseball.com. You can follow me uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, under my name, I have a Facebook page, Eric Sherman Baseball. Um, I have a YouTube page, Eric Sherman Baseball. Um, So you can pretty much Google me and you'll find me. Um, But um, yeah, it's it's a great time to read baseball books while baseball is um, on hold. So uh,
1: Absolutely. Yeah, everybody's going to enjoy this, hopefully. And we're all stuck at home. So let's talk about some baseball. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. I really appreciate it. It's great well, talking
2: to you. Ryan, a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Thank you.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh.